Warning, some of the subjects we discuss may be too intense or graphic for some audiences. Texarkana, Texas, 1946. A mass killer terrorizes this small town over a six-month period, leaving five deaths, three injured and traumatized for life, and an entire town changed forever. During the time of the murders, Texarkana was a small town full of a very diverse population due to the immigrant wave from the 1920s as well as post-World War II influx. And with so many different ethnic groups, there was a lot of culture clash going on which led to crime. Another influx of people into the small town was caused by the railways. There were four different railways that offered passenger service, as well as two airlines that had a couple flights per day. This led to a population growth which, as we know, usually also leads to crime. Texarkana was no stranger to crime. The year before, there had been a string of murders that took place, and there were frequently high-speed chases through the town as traffickers tried to escape justice while running liquor from Louisiana to Oklahoma. There were also frequent shootouts, holdups, and knife fights. This is why the sheriff initially passed off the Phantom's first attacks as these types of crimes. The world is a fearful place. We are surrounded by people and things that would do us harm. Some walk among us every day, while others lurk in the shadows, a threat unknown. Join us as we discuss all of the things that frighten us most, from the paranormal and unknown, to the true and horrific crimes committed by our very own kind, with Matt Knapp and Lauren Smith on, on Planet, Planet Fear. Fear. Texarkana at that time was busier than it is now due to all of the influx and post-World War II movement. There were nightclubs, beer joints, as they said, liquor running, all of that kind of stuff. So these crimes took place, um, I believe, I watched the movie, uh, which told a different story (laughs) Mm -hmm. than what actually happened. But it is, you know, some perspective on the events. But this was like what two months after the end of the war it was yeah it was very close after the end of the war very close yeah so you had a lot of servicemen i assume returning home from the war Mm -hmm. which we know still today those you know back then they didn't they weren't as aware of the mental stress and the problems that war causes Mm -hmm. on people as they are now you know ptsd and things like that um but we know that at the end of wars and whenever servicemen return home, bad things can happen. You know, the, mm-hmm. these guys need help, and a lot of times help isn't there. Right. And in this situation, you had that going on on yes. top of everything else. Um, yes. On top of just, you know, stressful times. Right. And yeah. Yeah. So something that comes up later is um, all of the war marriages. Mm-hmm. Like people getting married and then as soon as they get back from war, they get divorced right. or whatever. Um, so that comes up later as well. But I, I thought that was inter- wartime marriage. That's what it was. Yeah. I'm going off to war, baby. <laughs> you know, my ship leaves tomorrow. <laughs> Let's, Let's get, get married. married. <laughs> so the sheriff at the time was Bill Presley. And his son, James Presley, actually authored a book about all of this. 
um, which is where some of the material comes from that we know from this. Um, it's called The Phantom Killer, Unlocking the Mystery of the Texarkana Serial Killer Murders, The Story of a Town in Terror. It's the longest title in the history of That's titles. the whole title? Yeah, that's the whole title. Oh. I know. <laughs> there was a movie made, two movies made, called The Town That Dreaded Sundown, as well as a documentary. These murders were known as the Texarkana Moonlight Murders or the Texas Phantom. So the premise is this guy goes after couples parked or, you know, on Lover's Lane, and he pretty much tries to murder them and, and, you know, does awful things to them. And in one of the accounts, he's wearing a pillowcase over his head or what looks to be a pillowcase with eye holes cut out in a mouth hole, which is in the movie and it's featured prominently. But in the other accounts, you don't see that. It's just the first one. Right. Um it's going to be interesting. I'm sure at some point in time, I mean, at least I would like to cover just urban legends. Mm-hmm. And of course you have the lover's lane killer urban legend that everybody, you know, the man with the hook on the hand and all that. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it would be interesting to see when those started right? with this guy, you know, I mean, basically focusing all of his attacks, uh, pretty much on lover's lanes, mm-hmm. you know, uh, teenagers going out necking and what have you and these that's sort of tomfoolery (laughs) shenanigans yeah and the interesting thing about this is serial killers that wasn't even really a term until like the 70s -hmm. they were just called kind of mass murderers and especially in texarkana with the high crime anyways and murders happening all the time you know there was just a lot of shoddy police work that went into this because a serial killer or anything of that type just was not on their radar at this time. Plus, it's a little, you know, outlaw town. Right. So. But a lot of the outlaw stuff that was going on at the time wasn't weird-ass murders. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the first attack happens, and it was certainly out of the ordinary, but I seriously doubt they're like, okay, we need to put a team together and find this guy. Mm-hmm. He's going to strike again. Yeah. Like, I, do you know in any of your research, uh, when was the point where they realized, oh, this is going to be an ongoing thing? Um, I think it was after the second one, I believe, is when they, I think after the second one, they decided to go ahead and put a little more effort into it and this might be a thing. The first one, because they survived, especially because they survived, the law enforcement just really, they cared, but it was like, eh, mm-hmm. like this is just an awful incident, you know, right. it, and they didn't really um, realize just how serious it was until after the second one. And then that's whenever, you know, they started being more diligent, calling in help and posting rewards, stuff like that. So let's talk about the initial attack. So on February 22nd, 1946, Sheriff Bill Presley got a late night call that a young couple had been attacked on a road known as Lover's Lane. It was a quiet night for the sheriff's office, so the sheriff and three patrolmen went out to the unpaved road to check it out. The officers tried to interview the victims, Jimmy Hollis, a 24-year-old insurance agent, and Mary Jean Larry, a 19-year-old female, at the scene. However, Jimmy was so badly injured that he could barely retain consciousness, and Larry was just really shooken up, or uh, Mary Jean. The sheriff sent them on to the hospital, and he and the other officers investigated the scene. 
I'm going to put investigated in quotes, air quotes there, because... Okay, so I already have a question. <laughs> I, they received a report. Mm-hmm. They go to investigate yep. and question the victims at the scene. Yeah. Where did the report come from? Okay, so I was getting there. Patience, oh. Matteo. Well, I'm just saying. I mean, you know, I'm, so, I'm sitting here listening to this because in the movie, that's not how it plays out at all. Of course. <laughs> and so basically what we're going to do for this show is I'm going to give the account and then Matt's going to tell how the... How she's wrong. How the producer of the movie <laughs> decided to tell the account. So the sheriff sent them onto the hospital. They combed through the surrounding area and they found nothing except for a pair of pants, which belonged to Jimmy. The officers did later take statements from the victims at the hospital. Jimmy had been rushed into emergency surgery due to a severe injury to his skull, and Mary Jean gave her account despite being so shaken up. When Jimmy awoke from his 15-day coma, that's when he gave his account. The two had been to see a film together. They ended the night at Lover's Lane for some private time. And while parked on the road, they were blinded by some stranger holding a flashlight. They assumed it was a law enforcement officer. But then they were told to get out of the car, and at that point, they realized this was not an officer of the law. However, fearing for their lives, they did as they were asked. Mary Jean pleaded with the attacker, stating they had no cash, and opened Jimmy's wallet to show him. The attacker told her over and over that she was lying, using foul language when doing so. He then ordered Jimmy to take off his pants. And then he proceeded to bash Jimmy in the head with the butt of his gun. And as soon as Jimmy collapsed, the attacker told Mary Jean to run. She took off. However, he chased her. And when he caught up with her, he asked her, why did you run? She stated that he told her to. He then called her a liar again over and over and then proceeded to punch her in the face and tell her again that she was lying. He beat her repeatedly, and then he sexually assaulted her with his gun. Before he ran off, he punched her in the face one last time. So she gets up. She's bleeding badly. She gets up, actually runs to the nearest neighbor, and that's where she calls the authorities. Okay. So that's how that happened. These two victims were actually both in the middle of a divorce from different people. and So <laughs> they're both in... Uh, disgruntled marriages we'll call them they yeah war weddings each other mm -hmm. they had been seeing each other and uh so the the sheriff assumed that the attack was perpetrated by like mary jean's estranged husband right but he was like 90 minutes away and able to give an alibi also the officers did not believe the two victims at first due to the fact that they had conflicting testimony due to their descriptions of the suspect not matching up Jimmy said that it was a young white guy and Mary Jean said that it was a an African-American man, a light-skinned African-American man. They both said that he was approximately six foot tall and male, but that's where it ended. Um, I think Jimmy ended up saying that he didn't see the hood and then Mary Jean said that he was wearing a pillowcase or hood on his right. face. Jimmy was blinded by the flashlight at the time. Right. And then got his head bashed in, so... Other than that, the at the attacker was unfamiliar to both of them. Mary Jean was not given a proper examination at the hospital, but it was concluded that she had bruising to her genitalia. Little was done following the report of this crime other than an article released by the officers in the local paper the next day. The sheriff was worried about an already present strain on racial tension in the town, as a few days before this attack, a young black man was lynched for no reason whatsoever. 
So he believed that this was a standard criminal activity type of thing, an isolated event. Like um, a revenge type attack? Or, or no, just just this was a standard criminal Just a random criminal event. thing, guy Yeah, it had nothing to do with anything, like. so they just really <laughs> didn't follow up on it. Um, both victims actually ended up leaving town after this. I, that doesn't mm. surprise me. Never to return. I mean, a, a 15-day coma, mm-hmm. that's quite the beating. Yeah. So I watched the documentary on this, and his, I want to say it's his son, said that Jimmy would be, you know, later on, and he had scars on his head from this, and later on he'd be walking through the woods with his wife, and he would just all of a sudden freak out and want to leave, and and just, you know, they couldn't even take walks through the woods. Wow. You know, we had discussed, usually when you hear about attacks like this, the perpetrator using the gun for the sexual assault is because they're impotent or, Mm -hmm. you know, frustrated. They can't, you know. So that's, of course, your first thought until you get to the later attacks. This was another point that stood out to me whenever it came to the movie. In the movie, they had the phantom killer Mm -hmm. bite the female victims, but not sexually assault them other than that. And throughout the entire movie, there was no sexual assault going on, no rape, nothing Mm -hmm. other than the biting and, you know, a doctor that comes in later and says, well, that's out of, you know, sexual anger or whatever. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's just because of when the movie was made in the 70s? I think so. I think so. It just Um, wouldn't fly at that time? Yeah, it was like very early 70s, I think. Did they ever see humanoids from the deep? Wasn't that around that time? And that was a very graphic movie. (laughs) It might have just been uh, director's choice. Oh, yeah, true. I, I, I don't really know why they left that part out because there's a lot of movies from that time period that get pretty graphic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, porn was definitely a thing back then. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But being like Legend of Boggy Creek, you know, there was really no cursing or anything. Right. And the same director directed this film and it being pretty much the same exact geographic area, Texarkana, yeah. it's like 20 miles away. So... Uh, it's it's a very conservative Christian town. Even if it was a little lawless back then, it was still a pretty conservative place. Maybe they were asked to not have that associated Maybe with them. So. But Maybe so. Maybe so. You know, and like the names and the exact dates were all changed. I and mean, of course, the names are going to be changed. But I'm right. saying, like the dates of the events were changed for seemingly no reason at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it was done. You know, obviously we're familiar. With Charles B. Pierce right. from The Legend of Boggy Creek. Um, <laughs> a little bit. very profound in the Bigfoot world. Just uh, a little. I was actually surprised to learn that he had made this movie about these events. I was too. I had always... So this is one of those movies that in my younger years, they had these things called video stores where you could go <laughs> and rent movies to take home with you Only on cassette and tapes. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this was one of those movies that you always saw in, like, the horror section or something, and you picked it up, and you're like, the time of the dread, okay, this looks cool. And then you, like, turn it over and, like, read the back of it, and you're like, nah, doesn't sound that good. Yes. So I never watched it. Yeah. I never knew that Charles B. Pierce was the person responsible or anything. But having seen The Legend of Boggy Creek so much... And now watching this, they were even filmed 
in similar styles like mm-hmm. you know it's supposed to be kind of like a documentary but at the same time fictional and tell a story mm-hmm. you know there's like narration going on like uh where the red fern grows and all those old movies yeah like it had that feeling to it mm-hmm. but it's about some psychotic serial killer <laughs> <laughs> it was very surreal watching this movie very surreal I'm just I'm very glad that that was your job and that mine was reading the good juicy stuff because I don't think I could have sat through that movie. I don't I sat through the documentary and it was actually pretty good. But there were even parts of that that kind of I was just like, what? So we have this first event seems like an isolated Mm -hmm. thing. Second event, March 24th, 1946. This was 30 days after the first attack, which, you know, for a serial killer, that's just kind of. Like, what was he doing? Like, what? Well, that was the thing about the movie. They made that more of a key point. Mm -hmm. Saying, you know, it's like every 30 days. And then it doesn't follow the 30-day pattern all of a sudden. And they're like, well, it was raining before. And it didn't rain, so maybe he's waiting for the rain. And (laughs) Maybe he's a werewolf and it wasn't a full Yeah, and I'm just like... (laughs) Is this how they investigated serial killers back then? Yes. No wonder so many of them have been left unsolved. No like, joke. <laughs> like it's the rain. That's what it is. He's waiting for it to rain again. I mean, it's it's crazy. It's not crazy to me, I guess, because there are a lot of unsolved cold cases, but it's just like this was just such a big deal. I mean, later on you'll see that, you know, life Time Life magazine did yeah. this huge multi-page spread on this and which now when you know most there there's ongoing serial killer mm-hmm. incidents happening right now yeah that you don't know about because they make it a point not to publicize yeah. them they don't want them to be publicized right and but, then back then yeah you know <laughs> cover back of then, time you yeah know, like time magazine came to Texarkana Texas and they covered this in a multi-page spread, putting things in there that weren't even real sometimes, yeah. like m- making it way worse than it was. And to this day, it's still an unsolved cold case, open indefinitely pending new evidence. I mean, the killer's dead. Maybe. Uh, well, I mean. I mean, we don't know because a lot of the family members of the victims are still alive. They're very old, but they are still alive. Yeah, this guy would have to be very old. You don't know. I do know that he'd have he to be was like Maybe he was a vampire. <laughs> a werewolf. We already and discussed And that's why this. he only attacked at night. That's why it was the moonlit murders. Okay. Second event, 30 days after the attack, March 24th. A father and his son are starting their morning and find two bodies shot in a car that was parked on a quiet street. As soon as they saw the blood in the car, the bodies and the bodies of a young couple slumped in the seats, they phoned the police. When the first responders arrived to process the scene, the ambulance and law enforcement vehicles arrived right after, and they attracted a lot of attention from nearby citizens. Soon after, police appeared and a relatively large crowd subsequently formed to see what was happening. Unfortunately, since Sheriff Presley and the Texarkana Police Department were not properly trained in collecting evidence, the crime scene was not adequately preserved and what evidence could be collected was destroyed due to mishandling. For example... Here's why I mentioned the crowd. When the tow truck came to take the car away, the officers failed to wear gloves and in the process muddled the possibility of collecting fingerprints of the suspect by adding their own. 
Also, one of the spectators of the crime scene that lingered dangerously close to the parked car found the keys about 100 yards away, picked them up with his bare hands to turn them into the police. <laughs> this would unfortunately be one of the many blunders that would occur in the course of this investigation. So at the horrifying scene, the police were unable to control the crowd gathered at the scene from interfering. However, in spite of this, there was some evidence found at the scene of the crime that came in handy. Both victims were shot in the back of the head twice with a 32 caliber gun executioner style. The bodies were identified as a young couple, Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore, after law enforcement officers found the female's class ring and both the high school, both the high school's name and her initials on it. You know, it just kind of sunk in. This was a very young girl. Very young, yes. This was somebody's daughter in high school. Mm-hmm. That's the thing we're going to get into is all of the girls were very young, dating older men. Uh, right. <laughs> and they were older men. They were young guys, too. And I'm not taking away from <clears throat> right. the male victims at all. Right. But small town, this part of the country. I mean, I, yes, it, it was a bustling town for the time. Mm-hmm. I, I get all that. But it's still the the attitude of the people, of society and everything, the way things were. They're still very much that way now in that area. Mm-hmm. Polly Ann was everybody's kid. Yeah. That's one of our kids is how the town would see it. Mm-hmm. And to think that like now the story changes for me. Now the story changes from this uh, strange case of a serial killer to someone's out there hunting these young girls mm-hmm. i mean that would be terrifying yeah for the people of the town and that's like one of the key points that was pressed in the movie but in my mind i i was always seeing it as like you know like oh my goodness there's a killer afoot you know right yeah. the town that dreaded sundown but no like that would be terrifying because you know how teenagers are they they're not going to stay home they want to go out with their friends and everything exactly and, you know they're gonna they're gonna find a way to go out with their friends yeah. and get out there and and they're in danger but they're teenagers they don't care and you have all these events taking place you know mm-hmm. and like a lot of these things were kind of centered around situations where the young girls were out at events that were taking place in yeah. the community going to the movies or playing at a concert <laughs> or whatever mm-hmm. this girl was actually supposed to go out with one of the local guys and whom I, I guess they had been courting or whatever. I, I don't know what they call it back then. But this other guy from he went to university about an hour away or two hours away. He called her up and he said, I'm going to be in town. And so she ended up going with him. Um, she called the other guy and she said, hey, so-and-so is going to be in town. Would you mind if I went out with him that night? And him being such a gracious guy, he said, yeah, that's fine. And so she went out with this other guy and this happened. Wow. <clears throat> so. That's weird. <laughs> because, I mean, the the first two people that were attacked were stepping out on their marriages. Well, they were in the process of divorce. Right. But, yeah. but they were. But. Marriage, you know, sanctity of marriage. They're mm-hmm. not divorced yet. This right. is, you know, the 1940s. But this one, it was more like she was, she had the guy's blessing. Yeah, I'm just saying it's just kind of weird. Yeah. It, it, that, you know, yeah. she left one guy that probably really liked her. Just, yes. you know, because a college guy was going to be in town and hit her up. And 
Yeah. And look where he took her. Look where he took her. So Griffin, the guy, mm-hmm. he was found on his knees behind the front seat, his pants pulled down to his ankles with the pockets turned out and his head resting on his hands as if he were asleep. More Pollyanna, Pollyann. She was found face down in the back seat and her purse was opened as if the perpetrator had sifted through it looking for cash and valuables. Additionally, there was a lot of blood found outside of the vehicle, which led to speculation that both Griffin and Moore were outside of their car when they were shot. So even though Griffin's wallet and Moore's class ring were found at the crime scene, the police suspected this crime was a fatal robbery due to Griffin's pockets being turned inside out and her purse being open. I mean, am I the only one <laughs> saying this is obviously staged to look like a robbery? I mean, isn't that how the cops should have like seen this? You know that and I know that. <laughs> they said that, so in the documentary, they said that um, it was the son of the sheriff. So the author of the book, he had accidentally stumbled upon some witnesses from the crime scene. And they said there was so much blood that it was dripping out of the car door onto the ground. So you go from a horrible, violent attack, but leaving them a lot. But, okay, so this is something we forgot. The first attack was interrupted when another car's headlights swept across them. Oh, that's right. And the murderer freaked out and ran off, and that's how she got away to go to the house. I forgot that part. So something interesting, Moore could have possibly been raped that night, but there were conflicting reports... And it was never released to the public, and she was unable to be examined for signs of sexual assault. So one of the things about this case, happening so long ago, it doesn't seem like there's a single authoritative source of all the information. Mm -hmm. It's like you get bits and pieces here and there from different places, and you kind of have to put it all together yourself. Yeah. Maybe that caused a lot of problems for them to solve this case. (laughs) You'd think. Um, So we had the sheriff's department working hand-in-hand with Texarkana PD. They were releasing things to the Texarkana Gazette, but only what they felt was important, which... Was nothing. Was nothing. (laughs) And, I mean, these were different times back then. We didn't have CSI and all this, you know, great stuff that we have now. We didn't have protocols in place. And even the bodies, you know, bodies were handled differently back then. So in the documentary, the little brother, he mentions they prepped the body and then the body of Pollyann. She went to the uncle's house where they kind of had an open casket wake there for her. And then um, eventually went and buried her in the cemetery. But he did mention this, which I thought was very interesting from a crime scene perspective. It is said that the 32 caliber bullet is actually still in her head to this day. So I thought that was interesting. But this couple had actually been on a double date with another couple and they were all at the movies And then this couple decided to drop the other couple off and then go off alone and have some private time. And that's when this happened. Some naughty time. We don't know that they could have been doing Bible study. You have no idea. Don't judge. Saw the movie. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Back Uh. to the movie. Okay. So (laughs) it was at this point in the investigation that Sheriff Presley decided to call in the help of the Texas Rangers in order to identify the type of gun used in the murder from the casings. 
Now, although the rangers did not have specific educational requirements, they were trained in the latest techniques of navigating a crime scene, which included analyzing ballistics, fingerprints, communicating, and record keeping. It's just really interesting to me because, like, so in the movie, <laughs> that's not what happened. In the movie, the couple we just talked about mm-hmm. uh, was found by the sheriff or one of his deputies. Whoever the main star sheriff was, he wasn't the one in charge, but he was the main character. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was just out driving, checking out Lover's Lane's areas because the guy was going to strike again. So they were covering those areas and heard gunshots oh, no. from his car as he's driving. So he goes to investigate. It's pouring down rain. And he uh, <laughs> finds the male victim laying in a field, I believe. And then finds the female victim tied to a tree dead. Oh, my gosh. With, that uh, didn't happen. With bite marks to her back. <laughs> and then he... I'm not wor- laughing. It's awful. But the discrepancies, like, yeah. and they then took he, like, some artistic works his way, liberties. Yeah, he, like, works his way back to the road, sees the killer get into his vehicle and drive off, and he's, like, shooting at him. <laughs> and he's, like, too far away, but he sees the vehicle, so he knows what kind of vehicle the guy drives. Pew, and pew. Yeah, and that's, like, the first victims that got killed. Like, that's how it goes down in the movie. Completely different, and honestly, not really as exciting as the true story. Exactly. I mean, fact is stranger than fiction. I mean, the guy they just like completely got this. away. <laughs> yeah, they could have followed this, and it would have been freaking terrifying. Yeah, but there wasn't like other people there, like how you're talking about like the crowd together. No, this was like out in the middle of nowhere, and it was just the the sheriff chasing down the bad guy mm-hmm. after finding the victims himself out in the field from hearing gunshots. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff. We'll continue and we'll get back to the movie. <laughs> But I'm just saying, there's lots of things about this movie that are just like, what the hell is going on? So, the rangers step in, and they actually had access to a crime lab. Yeah, they had a crime lab in Austin, so they could handle evidence collected at the crime scene. So, the first action of the rangers was to scold local police department for not securing the scene. Uh, Then they extracted the bullets, sent them to the Texas Ranger Lab, and it was concluded that both victims were shot with the 32 automatic pistol that was most likely to be a Colt model. So, while the first couple's attacks had quickly (laughs) left the minds of Texarkana residents, The murders of the second couple shocked the town and incited a thorough investigation that did not reveal anything, despite a $500 reward that was posted for any solid leads to the killer's identity. But no one came forward with anything useful, at least not before the killer struck again. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Can you imagine that pissing contest? The Texas Rangers versus the Texarkana Police Department, 1946. <laughs> they, bring, know, like, they bring the FBI in later, too. Jesus. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Like, I am just picturing the accents, the size of the oh, guns and the Stetsons. Amount of spit. And <laughs> the residents of Texarkana actually called that out later on. How everyone's just strutting around with their guns and Stetsons and no one's doing a damn thing to protect the town. Third event, right? Third event. On the morning of April 14th, 1946, Bessie Brown, Bessie Brown awoke with a feeling that something wasn't right. 
her daughter, Betty Jo Booker, had not returned from a Saturday night gig of playing her saxophone at the VFW. Booker's stepfather, Clark Brown, dismissed her anxiety as over-exaggeration. But Bessie insisted, and Clark started making phone calls in order to find her daughter. Clark humored his worrying wife and called Janan Gleason, the friend that Betty Jo was supposed to be staying with that night. The phone call not only gave legitimacy to Bessie's suspicions, but also alarmed Clark when he learned that Betty Jo had never made it to that slumber party. Further to this, she had not been heard from all night. Hmm. Now, Betty Jo was 15. 15 years old. That same morning, the fellow residents of Texarkana and their young son found the crumpled body of a young man on the side of North Park Road at 6 a.m. and called authorities from a nearby home. Sheriff Presley and the chief of police of the Texas side of Texarkana, that's an important Mm -hmm. desertion you need to make, received the call and were first to respond to the scene. Presley arrived to a gruesome scene of a collapsed body, which was reportedly lying on its left side, his head and the trunk of the body on the leaves and grass, his feet and legs jutted onto the dirt road. He was wearing a light-colored long sleeve shirt with his arms and hands in front of him. So at the scene of this third phantom attack, the sheriff identified the body as Paul Martin from the ID in his wallet. Again, he still has his wallet. This is clearly not a robbery. Martin had been shot four times in the back of the neck, the shoulder, his right hand, and one final bullet to the face. Like, at that close of contact, you need that many shots? That's anger. That's rage. To me. Trails of blood crossing the street indicated that after Martin had been shot, he had crawled across the unpaved road before finally succumbing to his injuries. Then the rangers were called in, and they found Paul Martin's abandoned coupe a mile away, with the keys still in the ignition. However, around the same area by the vehicle, Sheriff Presley then found a black date book, which he later discovered belonged to Paul Martin, which Paul, I guess, dropped when he was abandoning the vehicle. And for unknown reasons, instead of sharing the evidence with the others, Presley simply placed the date book in his pocket and carried on with the investigation. Tampering with evidence. (laughs) Yeah. It's a good thing that they never did catch this guy because it would have just been a mistrial and he would have walked. We'll get to that later. (laughs) But yeah, after securing the scene with techniques taught to them by the Texas Rangers, I'm glad they finally took notes, um, and the FBI agent that stepped in, Sheriff Presley recruited Texarkana residents to search for Betty Jo Booker. Her parents' fears were realized when Betty Jo's body was found about two miles away from Martin's corpse. She was fully clothed, her coat was buttoned, and her body was resting on her back with her right hand tucked inside of her pocket. Her body was undisturbed and relatively untouched. She looked as if she were asleep. However, Betty Jo had been shot twice. Once in the chest that penetrated her heart and once in her face where the bullet passed through her left cheek near her nose. Later examination suggested the murderer had faced her when he shot her at point-blank range. Um, Also, they found a leaf between her shirt and her coat, suggesting that he had put the coat back on her, clearly. Mm -hmm. This was 21 days after the second murder. 15 years old. 15 years old. She had been playing at the VFW on her saxophone. And so the leader of the band was also very young. And so what had happened with her being out that late because a lot of people are like who's gonna let their 15 year old be out that late playing at the vfw there was a band bunch of guys playing war time comes around all those older men 
go off to war and this young kid takes over the band. Well, he's having trouble recruiting people to play, so he gets a bunch of his high school people he goes to high school with that play in the band there and recruits them to come play. Mm -hmm. And so that is why there were these young people playing. And um, she was actually quite well known for her saxophone. Um, She took it everywhere. But when she would go play, she would usually return home to drop off her saxophone and then she would go have a slumber party or do whatever. When they found her body, they did not find the saxophone and it was not at home. Actually, her saxophone not being at home is really what alerted her mother to there being an issue. I remember that uh, reading about the saxophone. uh, Didn't they end up finding it later? They put kind of an APB out for the saxophone. Yeah. Um just everybody look around and it actually turned up in a pawn shop i think in galveston and there was a very nervous man trying to pawn the saxophone i mean shouldn't that be like a huge clue one would think we get to that later but they had i mean when they really turned up the heat on this investigation they had thousands of suspects come through their office that they vetted a lot of people well it was this killing where they really turned up the heat in the movie in this one too really um they brought the fbi in on this one i mean this is where it yeah in the movie <laughs> uh every time you say in the movie i giggle just because it was <laughs> this was my favorite part of the movie it's horrible it's strange it's absolutely oh no horrible. it is horrible i don't even oh God. in the movie she did not play the saxophone <laughs> I'm not laughing it's awful stop she played the trombone and i believe if i remember correctly it was prom that they were at and she was playing in the band at prom or some sort of school dance not the vfw that was another weird thing that they changed who knows why Mm -hmm. so anyways in the movie the killer so said killer uh does not kill her by shooting her Mm -hmm. he kills her by tying her to a tree like the second victim that he killed Mm -hmm. uh previously and uh, affixes his large pocket knife to the slide of the trombone and then pretends to play the trombone while stabbing her with the pocket knife affixed to the trombone as he's playing it in the back. So I really enjoy cheesy horror films and bad sci-fi movies. Um, I love roasting them. And so if you hear me snickering... It is because I love when they do really I, creative uh, things yeah, yeah. such as that. But so that is I I feel really bad that I'm laughing right now. But it's, it's just they, it's horrible the situation, what happened, and everything. But the they creative took, mind of Charles <laughs> B. Pierce. They took such creative liberties with this whole movie. A knife attached to a trombone, <laughs> and the killer, while still adorned with the pillowcase mask. Has the trombone and like you, you see him like process the thoughts and everything as he like kind of puts it together. Like, wait a second, I've got my knife on me. I could, yeah, let me try this. And he's like, and he's like blowing through the trombone and it's like not making any noise. And he's, but he's still like blowing just like oh, violently. I'm he's, sure he's violently playing the trombone because he's using it as a weapon to kill this woman. It was pretty hilarious, to be honest. I, I mean, that's horrible. Because I just picture like, ree, 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 yeah. ree. <laughs> it was almost as funny as the part of 
they almost got away. They're in the car driving off, and he chases them down and yanks the guy out of the car and kills him. And the car's, like, driving around in circles with, like, her in the passenger seat, and the car's just, like, driving itself through the woods and, and, like, finally smacks into a tree, and that's how he's able to catch up with her, which, in reality, the car was, what, a mile away? Yeah. Two so miles, yeah. I mean, yeah, this car's like, and it was like that whole like slapstick Gilligan's Island thing where like the car's going in circles and the Gilligan like chasing after it and stuff. That's awful. And then he catches her and he's like, "You made me run. I'm gonna kill you with a trombone and a pocket knife." Did she trip? I think she did. She has to. One of them did trip. One of them was running away from him and like got to like a gate or a fence or something and was about to escape. And tripped. And tripped. They all tripped. He might have shot her. So they examined the bullets, same as the prior murder case. On April 20th, the after the FBI examined Booker's body, and this is where it gets interesting, they found that she tested positive for semen and her vagina had marked bruising, which reportedly could have been from either penile insertion or penetration from the pistol grip. And this is the 15-year-old. Mm-hmm. However, when analyzing the male victim's genitalia for signs of seminal fluid, he tested negative. So it was assumed that the two of them did not have sex. So you have the first attack where she was sexually assaulted with the gun. Some accounts say it was with the barrel. Some say it was with the pistol grip. The second account, they were unable to verify. They were unable to examine Right. Uh, her body, which I still don't understand quite why. I think they just didn't get to it in time, maybe. It decom- I don't know. Third yeah. victim, she appears to have been raped raped uh, by the guy and not the gun. Or both. both, we don't know. But it seems like if he was having impotency issues at the beginning, he escalated to where now he is able to complete or partially complete or something something so i thought that was interesting um there was a kind of an expert they brought on during the documentary and he said that this guy he thinks that it is a uh a soldier that has come back that this soldier had had a rejection or some kind of lover's lane incident with someone he fancied and either there was like a can't quite get their moment or she rejected him she dismissed him something like that and then he goes to war he comes back he has ptsd and he the way that the guy explained it was basically he has like a collection of injustices that have happened to him and he just keeps collecting these injustices it could be like he can't get a job and his wife left and his dog died and his truck broke down it's like all these things that lead up to him just flying into a rage instead of starting a country music career you know he grabs a pillowcase cuts some holes in it gets his 32 caliber pistol out of the sock drawer now the expert also stated that the man was most likely native i'm sorry african-american and which one of the victims did say so that's something that he said and and again the injustices and everything i just i think it's very interesting that he was able to 
Either he was able to finish the deed with her or she could have been with someone else. We don't know. But I just... I mean, 15-year-old girl performed at the VFW that night. Those times, I I don't know. I You know, it's hard to say. It's all just speculation. But one would assume under those circumstances it is at least highly unlikely mm-hmm. that she would engage in sexual activity of that nature. Mm-hmm. Willingly. Yeah, I think it was definitely, you know, the there's a couple experts that said he was a, and, and all the headlines, he's a sex-crazed maniac and, you know, all of that. Um, because back in that day, it wasn't even called sexual assault. It wasn't called rape. It was mm-hmm. called criminal assault. Right. They had even a different term for it. They didn't yeah, even they, they didn't, didn't even give voice to that. Yeah. Or anything. They didn't give voice to that. And they yeah. and actually the uh, law enforcement made the decision to keep those details out of the news on purpose. Not that they would have probably even printed it, but right. they did not even tell that the females had been assaulted. Um so yeah, I think that it was I think it was definitely more of a revenge thing or like a slighted lover. And I, like the guys have their pants pulled down, kind of like humiliated. Yeah, emasculated, and like yeah. Posed up and everything. Mm-hmm. Like the 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 one victim was like posed up like he was asleep in the back seat. Yeah. With his pockets pulled out. You know, the thing that the expert did mention was that the killer was both organized but very disorganized at the same time like he would have moments it's almost as if he was insane but had moments of lucidity to where you know walking up on the couple and blinding them with his light and then blitz attacking them Mm -hmm. you know he said it was very soldier-like um as they were trained during that time in the infantry to if someone's coming at you and you don't know if it's friend or foe, you blind them and, you know, attack right. before they can or whatever. And so he pointed out several times where it was very organized and it was very soldier-like. Yeah. And then um, later on, we see that he fires a kill shot from 30 yards away in the dark. Yeah. Just, which, I mean, a hunter, I guess, could do. Someone raised around there that had been hunting right. their whole life. But, you know, there is a lot of evidence that shows that it could be a soldier returned from war. Maybe he came back and his wife was stepping out on him. It, it was a different situation, obviously. Mm-hmm. But in the movie, they made him not talk at all. Right. More mysterious. That More way. mysterious. So he didn't talk or anything. And they made all of his actions very soldier-like. Mm-hmm. Like it was just like walking straight up to the car attacking them killing them doing whatever and that's it and he's out Hmm. um no emotion nothing whenever he would attack somebody in the movie it wasn't like a uh emotional attack you know like uh, the first attack that put the guy in the coma that's obviously a very emotional attack Mm -hmm. you know he's like beating this guy to death and he beat the female to death yeah and in the movie it was more of just he did what he needed to do to incapacitate the male so he could go after the female. When you shoot people in the face, which is what he did to Booker, mm-hmm. that's personal. Yeah. It's like when you take away their identity, I think he definitely had a grudge against women. And I, I feel my personal opinion is that he was definitely cheated on or. But it had to have been somebody young something. as well. This guy couldn't have been that old. I mean, at some point, yeah, 
I agree with everything you're saying. Mm-hmm. But because of who he was targeting, other than the one incident that we haven't talked about yet. Yeah. But he's going after young couples at Lover's Lane. So if you think about it, if he was a soldier, he was young mm-hmm. before he went off to war. He comes back from war. He's older. But in his mind, the incident that... He's still the guy that, you know... He's still a young high school guy. And everything. Yeah. Yep. I, I don't know. Uh, I also think it's interesting about, you know, the staging, the robberies, you know, and like leaving the guy's pockets out almost in a humiliating way. Like you're asleep in the back seat, You don't know what's going on right in front of you. Mm-hmm. And you're broke. You don't have any money. Why is she even with you? Yeah. It's all uh, very interesting. In your research, did it say anything about this case happening inside the town? Like Mm-hmm. The park was like in town. Yeah. So that that last one or the second one, it was like a quiet street. Yeah. Like this Where is this the happened. one that really freaked. I mean, everybody was yeah. freaked out already. Yeah. But this was the one that like. Yeah. Got people nailing windows shut. and. Yeah. So, yeah, that's actually mentioned next. This one, it, it caused the townspeople to go into a spiral of panic. Local hardware stores were selling out of guns, ammo, deadbolt locks, and screen door braces. Curfews were placed for all the residents and young people, and the young people traveled in groups armed with self-defense pistols. Simultaneously, local law enforcement, as well as their FBI and Ranger cohorts, had a revolving door of suspects who were constantly in and out of the station. They arrested locals. They even arrested a local African-American man named Sammy, who was actually known to the community as a gentle soul. Like, they were going after everybody. Local law enforcement, along with the FBI and Rangers, also unsuccessfully implemented traps all over on Lover's Lane. (laughs) Trying to lure the Phantom out to cars that look like the victims. They set up mannequins in the car to make the Phantom think that people were parking. Hmm. Um, Charles B. Pierce chose to dress up in drag and pretend to be a woman (laughs) as opposed to use the mannequins he had the officers go out undercover with one of them as a female that was the thing about this (laughs) okay so like this movie for some reason charles b pierce who was a prominent character in the movie he played Mm -hmm. a role uh the comic relief Mm -hmm. character of the role he decided that what does this docudrama about a serial killer need? Comedy. It needs a little a little laugh here and there. Hence the trombone. Yeah. It was during this portion in the events that Charles B. Pierce decided to do a high-speed car chase where his character actually launched the patrol car into a pond, a la Dukes of Hazard, <laughs> uh, with the lone wolf. Texas Ranger in the vehicle at the time. I I left him out of my research, but I mean, so there was a prominent Texas Ranger Mm -hmm. that was part of this case. He was called the Lone Wolf. (laughs) Probably gave that name to himself. Definitely. He comes in and immediately tells... Starts, he had basically fed this this story to everybody and then like made everyone spread it around that he had single-handedly wiped out all these outlaws you know and that he was this just really wild west gunslinger you know 
Texas Ranger. But he was very, I don't know a nice word. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he was, Um, wasn't he? Every day he would wake up and get his beard trimmed and his hair combed over and all of this and Uh, a nice shaved. Yeah, a douche (laughs) is where I was going with that. And this came every day. He would primp and then go eat and like all of this stuff before like all of that came before the investigation, like his image and what he felt like telling the townsfolk and stuff like that. That came before the investigation every day. His time in the limelight. Yeah. His ego was bigger than his Stetson hat. In, in the movie, it was all about his name precedes him. Yes. Like, you know, well, I'm bringing in the lone wolf. What? You're bringing in lone wolf? <laughs> you know, and then he gets to town and like the townspeople are like, can I have my picture taken with you? Like they know who he is or something <laughs> like nobody would know who this guy no. is. It was pretty funny. So we had ego. It was just full of egos. Yeah. The whole investigation. So let's get to the fourth event and the last yeah. of it. The strangest part of it to me. Yeah, this one uh, is speculative on whether it was part of the Phantom Killer or not. So on May 3rd, 1946, Virgil Starks, he's a 37-year-old farmer, and his wife of 14 years, Kate, who was 36. So again, these are older people, so first we're Mm -hmm. already off the beaten path, okay? They were settling down for the night after a long day. The Starks lived on a 500-acre farm that housed uh, Virgil's welding shop. And so he had a reputation for helping his neighbors repair broken farming equipment when needed and stuff like that. His wife, Katie, she was a stunning brunette who was devoted to her husband. It was a nice couple. They're They're very nice and helpful. You know, good reps. On the date in question, Virgil was sitting in the front room of their house, the curtains wide open because they're like the only house in the area that left their curtains open after dark. He was reading a book, and he had his heating pad resting on his lower back. Katie was in the other room uh, in bed waiting for her husband when a clatter arose. He was, you know, turning to his back, and she was laying in bed waiting for his arrival. (laughs) A clatter arose. (laughs) Her suspicions. I didn't get to finish before you started giggling. Convinced that her husband had dropped something and broken it, Katie left the bedroom to attend to her husband, but found that Virgil was slumped dead in his armchair, blood seeping down his neck. Mm -hmm. Kate judged that Virgil had been shot from outside their living room window from the holes in their glass. The killer was at a distance of about 18 to 22 inches from the window where he could have clearly seen the back of Virgil's head. Now... This is this report, but I have heard conflicting reports to where Virgil was on the front porch and was shot from 30 yards away. Well, let me clarify for you. Um, according to the movie, <laughs> what did happen? Let's get to the... To the <laughs> <laughs> what happened was she was in town shopping that day oh and caught the eye of the so-said phantom killer oh, no. while in town <sighs> who followed her back to her home. Uh, somehow or maybe he knew her because they never said who the phantom killer was in the movie obviously Mm -hmm. uh so later that night he's stalking them at home and i can confirm via the movie (laughs) that the killer was in fact standing at the window on the front porch and shot him through the head 
mm-hmm. the back of the head mm-hmm. while he was, I believe, reading the newspaper mm-hmm. um, from the window. It was a couple shots, I think. Yes. Uh, she heard the shots and came to check on her husband and saw the killer standing at the window with the bag on his head and the gun. Um, I do believe he shot her, but she was only injured. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she was able to crawl away yes. through the house. Yes. She uh, is one of the three that were left traumatized forever. So he shot Virgil through the back of the head and once in the lower back, which short-circuited the heating pad that he was using. I'm going to assume the one through the head is the one that killed him. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> On a day when if my back hurts, I'm just If he's 18 saying. to 22 inches away, <laughs> how does he miss the first shot? <laughs> From the window. We don't know. His wife, Katie, immediately ran to the telephone, but before she could use it, the assailant fired two more shots, both entering her face. I think she made it to the phone and made the call, uh, but I don't think the call went through, or maybe the operator heard her screaming on the other end. It was All I know is it was played by Miss Don Wells. May her rest in peace eternally. May her rest in peace. <laughs> What? May she rest in peace. May her. <laughs> May her rest in peace eternally. That's who played her it's in so the movie. disrespectful that you're making me laugh right now. <laughs> I'm not making you laugh. You are cracking me up. Um, yeah, prior to this... this uh, Marianne from Gilligan's Island, oh my God. if anybody's So prior confused. to us actually hitting the record button, I got a very rousing 30-minute... Don Wells over and over from Matt over there, including every scene that she was in in this movie, everything she was wearing, her car, okay. especially the car. And <laughs> I grew up spending a lot of time at the lake. And at our lake house, the only entertainment I had was a small 13 inch black and white television, no cable, rabbit ear antennas. My favorite thing to watch reruns of Gilligan's Island. Mm hmm. This was during my, uh, shall we say, pubescent years. (laughs) This explains so much about you. Yeah. Mm. And let's just say I was more into Marianne than I was into Ginger. Everybody was. As they should have been. (laughs) May her rest in peace. May her rest in peace Um, eternally. So when she was shot in the face, one of the rounds ripped through the skin beside her nose and exited by her ear while the other entered her lower jaw. So just you can just imagine how painful yeah. all of this oh, is. Oh, yeah. This is your face you're talking about. Both bullets tore through her teeth, and the bullet to the front of her lower jaw actually lodged itself under her tongue. And her husband has just been shot yes. and killed. Still in shock, Katie dropped to the floor to avoid any more bullets and then fled to the bedroom to search for the personal firearm that Virgil kept there. However, before she could arm herself... She realized her attacker was breaking down the back door to come after her inside the house. So, again, this is more terrifying than the movie, I'm sure. This ain't Lover's Lane either. Mm -mm. This is home invasion. Right. Katie gathered her courage and miraculously was able to run out the front door to a neighbor who took her to the hospital. In the documentary, they said that she was laying on the floor and he was coming at her and she just like threw it. She just gave up and she was like. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die running. And she scrabbled like hands and knees, crawled to the door, and then took off running for her life. Yeah, she made it to the neighbors in the movies Mm -hmm. and collapsed in the front yard. 
in a very elderly man. <laughs> what the hell's going on out here? What's all that ruckus, you know? And like the killer just runs off and I'm like, wouldn't he just kill him too? So this attack was 19 days after the last one. It's completely different than all the others. When the police department entered the house, they found Virgil slumped over body, the smoke of the short-circuited heating pad, numerous, this is the interesting thing to me, numerous bloody handprints all over the furniture and walls. So the killer had dipped his hands in Virgil's blood and made like this vile scene. Went back, chased after her, Mm -hmm. and then went back. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's like, is he escalating? Is he just lost his dadgum mind? Well, that's the thing. So is it a situation where this is a wannabe or a copycat or whatever you want to call it? Just somebody else got triggered by the serial killer and it's somebody different? Is the guy escalating? Is he changing up what he does? Because this was also the last event, wasn't it? It was the last event and... You know, they they really went through the house to find everything, and it was they were actually shot with a twenty two rifle, not a thirty two caliber handgun. So it's mm. a completely different gun as well. That's just weird. It's just it, it it is. It's just weird because it's so different. But he incapacitated. Inca- I can't say that word right now. Incapacitated the man first, as usual. Mm-hmm. And then went after the woman. And when he went after her, he shot her in the face. And that's the same as the others. He shot him in the face. Like, that is personal and rage to me. Like, if I was so mad at someone I wanted to kill them and, like, I didn't even want to, like, look at their face, like, F your face and then pa-pa. I mean, you're erasing their identity from your brain. That is rage to me. I don't. I mean, I, well, you know. Uh, dipping your hands in blood. I mean, that's just, yeah. <laughs> And putting handprints all over the place. Marking your territory. So the officers immediately secured the house in order to prevent the previous mistakes that had been made in this investigation. However, their work had been overridden by the numerous other officers that arrived a short time later. They preserved the crime scene on the inside, but not the outside. Because they hadn't been trained in that yet. Um, making any chance of tracking the killer impossible. So the bloodhounds who had been brought in to <laughs> track the killer, that. Um, they were unable to follow a single distinct scent. The only evidence that was preserved was a set of latent fingerprints inside the house, which I would imagine after he stuck his hands all over everything, and the mark of a size 10 shoe outside the window, and also a two-cell red flashlight that was dropped where the phantom would have stood. So the Texarkana Gazette reported the following day, murder rocks the city again, farmer slain and wife wounded. And the law enforcement ran an ad in the newspaper desperately trying to find a link between the flashlight and the crime scene. So the ad pleaded for anyone who owned or knew of anyone who owned one of these lights to please report to the sheriff. Really? That's all they got? Yep. That's it. Hmm. Yep. While law enforcement did attribute this attack to the Phantom, there were doubts, of course. Um, the M.O. had changed uh, from him attacking lovers, lame people to people in their own home. Um, the Starks did not fit into the Phantom's usual victims. They were married, older, well-established in the community. And Virgil was shot with 22. Virgil and Kate were shot with a 22 and not a 32. 
And it was a rifle, not a handgun. Regardless of whether this was the Phantom or not, the public, they were already tense. Yeah. (laughs) And um, they had broken out into outright hysteria at this point. Yeah. So... I mean, the guy was shot through his window. Yeah. Uh, That's scary. That's terrifying. I've been out in the country before, (laughs) and I I believe you have, um, inside a house with windows at night. And you're looking out there thinking anybody or anything could be standing out there right now watching me. And I wouldn't know it because you can't see anything out of a window at night Mm -mm. in the country at dark, you know, at dark, at dark with the lights on inside. May her Uh, rest in peace. May her rest in peace eternally. (laughs) I'm just saying, yeah, that would freak me out. I'd be covering up my windows. So although local and federal law enforcement seem to be kicking everything into high gear, Nothing was reassuring to the people of Texarkana. 1,300 suspects were dragged to the police station and interviewed before being released. So soon, no one was venturing out after dark, and many residents were terrified and shut themselves into their houses at night. Even those in Little Rock, which is about two and a half hours away, they were locking themselves in their houses, afraid that the Phantom would start to move where he killed. This inspired reporters from all over the country to flock to the small town, attempting to get the latest scoop. Just so much anxiety, and then Life magazine featured a massive spread. They titled their article, Texarkana Terror, Southern City is Panicked by Killer Who Shoots According to Schedule, a fact that was only true in one instance. And mostly the article covered the reaction of the citizens in the wake of the murders, talking about buying guns, locking their doors, and all the panic. So the residents also began to blame the Phantom for such instances as their telephone service being shut down and a 22 caliber bullet smashed through the window of a home near the high school. They blamed him for that. Texarkana neighbors were calling the cops on their neighbors uh, about suspicious persons who turned out to be the mailman or a drunkard. <laughs> Who ended up being shot in the toe in because the movie, of it? It was like a stray cat digging through trash. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, like they did the whole old woman calls the cops bit, and it's a cat in the trash can. Like they did that. Tensions between the press and the public started to sprout. Also, when reporters were allegedly inappropriately fondling waitresses in the bars and getting into physical altercations with locals, Texarkana residents also turned on the Texas Rangers and FBI, claiming that they were. worth of cowboy boots and big white hats and 15 cents worth of brains. Shouldn't that be a feeding frenzy for a serial killer at that point? All that publicity and like the cops can't catch me. People quit going out. People quit going out. Is that why the last couple was attacked? Because kids quit going to Lover's Lane and he had to quench that thirst? Did beautiful Don Wells do something to anger him? Is she the true victim? Is, is Was that the point the whole time? Was he working his way up to her? We will never know. We will never know. Because he's still out there. Jesus. What? <laughs> Bro, that's terrifying. <laughs> they did have a prime suspect. Yule Swinney. Y-U-L-E. It's not. No. It's Y-O-U-E-L-L. Yule. Like Yule. Like Yule. That's what I said. Yule <laughs> Swinney. That's why I said Yule. That wasn't an accent. That was me saying his name. I've never heard that name in my life. Me neither. So it's interesting. That was the prime suspect at the time and still to this day the most prominent suspect. Now. Why was he the prime suspect? I'm going to tell you. Thanks. 
Fun fact on the side, though, the documentary featured music played by the Yule Swinney Band. Huh. So this band named themselves after the... Okay, anywho. The main suspect. Yep. June 1946. While the Phantom was busy terrorizing Texarkana, a string of auto thefts and subsequent abandonment of stolen vehicles was simultaneously taking place. So this guy, I'm just going to sum it up for you, Yule Swinney was stealing cars, and he stole this particularly nice vehicle, took it to a, a auto lot, and he was like, hey, I'd like to sell this car to you. And the guy's like, cool, you got a title? And he said, well, no. And he said, you produce a title, we make the trade. It's all good. He ended up not being able to produce the title. Hmm. Uh, the guy called the cops, whatever. He was arrested. Now, when he was arrested, he started panicking and pleading, saying, please don't shoot me, please don't shoot me, I didn't mean to do it, you know, and all this stuff. Like, freaking the hell out, and the guy's like, I'm I'm not going to shoot you. Like, you're just being arrested for a stolen car. He's like, oh, yeah, no, it's everything else, too. And he's like, yeah, you have quite the record. He's like, no, it's all the other things. I'm so sorry. Don't shoot me. Don't shoot me. There's this one highway patrol or state trooper. And he noticed the link of the timeline of the stolen cars for Yule Swinney and the murders that were being committed. His suspicions were confirmed when a complaint was filed in Murfreesboro from an Arkansas farmer, Jim Mays, who was also the landlord, said that his tenant had been playing, blah, blah, blah. His tenant turned out to be Yule Swinney. Yule Swinney. He claimed that he had failed to pay his rent and considered, you know, a, a criminal assault in Arkansas. And that he had skipped town, all of that. Um, Tackett learned that the plates that Swinney, you know, had been of the car Swinney had been driving had been stolen on the night of March 24th, the same night as Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore, their murders. Leads on the location of the stolen automobile were followed to no avail. Then a peculiar yet promising clue emerged. A minor relative of Swinney recalled his habits, which included leaving the car parked in a certain Texarkana parking lot. Trooper Charlie Boyd, with no other leads, occasionally drove by the lot to keep an eye out for the vehicle, not expecting to see anything. But one day in late June, the stolen Plymouth was noticed and confirmed as the same vehicle for which the police were looking. Upon finding the car, police decided to begin a stakeout. At some time, a woman by the name of Peggy Stevens Swinney, newly married that same day to Yule Swinney, turned up to claim the vehicle. She stated she was not sure where her new husband was at that particular time. Peggy was arrested and taken to Miller County Jail to await the arrival of her husband, the apparent non-paying tenant, car thief, and quite possibly the prime suspect of the Texarkana murders. It was apparent through her statements regarding her husband that he was the Phantom Killer. She knew of certain information that would have been exclusive knowledge only to the killer and any accomplices he might have made. In her first statement to police, Miss Swinney was unable to account for her husband's whereabouts during the times the crimes were being committed on February 22nd, March 23rd, April 13th, and May 3rd. In fact, on April 26th, Peggy revealed to police that after a spat with her husband, she went back to her mother's home, which was situated on... Richmond Road, not far from where the 22nd 
assaults had occurred in February. It was at this time that Peggy's friend called to inform her that her husband was in town and looking for her, armed with a 32 caliber pistol. Unknowingly, Peggy also placed her husband in Texarkana during the time of the Martin Booker murders on April 13th, as she stated that they were staying with her mother for about two days during that weekend. On May 3rd, Peggy's sister and Yule Swinney had an argument over money that the couple owed her. The same night, Peggy and Yule rented a hotel room where Yule left Peggy for at least five hours, returning after midnight. This was the same night that the Starks murders occurred. Peggy later stated that when Yule returned to the hotel, he was covered in blood, which she wiped away with a towel that was later found by investigators under the mattress, exactly where she said she left it. While searching his clothes, Swinney's sister found a shirt, obviously too large for Swinney, with the laundry mark of Stark on the inside collar. The shirt was also identified by Virgil Stark's wife. However, she couldn't quite be sure. Upon inspection, she remembered repairing a button on the shirt that she was able to point out that there were metal fragments also found on it that were from the workshop, Stark's workshop. So, so far... This guy's it. Yeah. I mean, come on. Right? Oh, We're going to get to the part as to why he never went to jail for this, right? In her second statement to police, Peggy stated her husband told her that he had stolen a saxophone from the car after the Booker Martin murders. However, it was in her third statement to police that Peggy further elaborated on the Booker Martin murders. Peggy stated that on the night of April 13th, she and Yule had left the hotel they were staying at and drove to Spring Lake Park where Yule told her he was going to find someone to rob. For these murders, she claims she was actually present, which is terrifying. Afterward, Yule told his wife that he had gotten rid of the 32 caliber gun, which would explain the change in caliber for the next murder of the Starks. When she was later taken to the crime scene, Peggy was able to identify the exact location where Paul Martin's car was parked on the night of April 13th. She also knew about the date book taken from Martin's pocket which he threw into the bushes and was later secretly retrieved by the sheriff. This proved that she knew details that only could be recalled by someone who was present during the murders. There was one limitation to her statements, though. She is married to the suspect and therefore protected by privilege not to testify against him. She was later released from the Miller County Jail on December 19, 1946. If he were to be charged with the murders, evidence against Swinney would be circumstantial at best, based on her testimony and such. So instead of charging him with murder and having a jury possibly dismiss the case, authorities on both the Texas and Arkansas sides decided to get Swinney off the streets. In order to do this, they would have to charge him as a habitual criminal under Texas law. I mean, this guy did it, right? Yeah, basically. Isn't that frustrating? Is that not frustrating as hell? But you would still think (laughs) that, like, okay, well, then we're going to get a search warrant and we're going to go find our own evidence. I I don't know. But that part was definitely left out of the movie. He just disappeared into the wilderness to strike again. Yule Swinney, he was just an interesting little little runt. It's petty crimes. The petty crimes wasn't what was going on. The petty crimes is just... The side effects of everything. So when he was young, he started out committing little burglary here and there. Um, Killing a puppy every now and then. (laughs) He was Caucasian, about 5'11", weighing about 166 pounds, with a tattoo of a heart and skull that spelled the word revenge on his arm. He had a scar on the left side of his upper lip and another one near his eyebrows. 
He did stints in both jail and prison and then upped his game to stealing cars. So the start of World War II got him released from prison until he violated parole months later. And by 1944, he was familiar to U.S. Marshals. But by 1946, was known to Texarkana as the main suspect in the murders. He actually was caught young at the age of 15 by the Secret Service for counterfeiting nickels. This guy just doesn't sound like a murderer. But they have these details that, you know, weren't really released. Okay, so that means his wife was the murderer. (laughs) (laughs) And back then, they just really didn't look to women, you know, like just like Jack the Ripper. There have been so many conspiracy theories that it was actually a woman. Right. It's, it's just crazy. So Yule, he pleaded not guilty under the Habitual Criminal Act. And regardless of the judge's recommendation, the jury still found Yule Swinney guilty and he was sentenced to life in prison on February 11th, 1947. However, 26 years later, after filing and withdrawing appeals and being extremely persistent, imagine that. Swinney was released from prison as a result of habeas corpus proceeding, and on September 15, 1994, he passed away a free man in the Dallas nursing home, and he was 77 years old. And never admitted to anything. Never admitted to being... I just wonder what, like, some of his family, like, if they have anything... Right. I mean, like, a huge thing that sticks out to me is his mask, you know, the hood that he wore. Mm Mm-hmm. I, I get the the law where a wife can't testify against a husband, you know, or vice versa or whatever if you're married. Still, there had to have been some way, some way, you know. How about some old-fashioned small-town justice? <laughs> you know, like, okay, yeah, I you're mean, free to go. They had others. Um, they had one that was pretty prominent. Uh, so he was a he was a local. And this was another main suspect. His name was Duty. Um, hmm. They mentioned that in the documentary, but there was not much that I could find on him in, in the But articles. he didn't have anybody giving away unknown details about the killings. Yeah, he didn't have someone sitting there saying, like, yeah, basically this guy did it, and, you know. Here's where the car was. There's a bloody towel. Exactly. Like, this is why the caliber changed. Uh, he had a saxophone that he pawned. What more do you need? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, but if you look at his petty little history, it just doesn't match up. Either that or there is a vital piece between his prison stints and his graduation from counterfeiting nickels to hawking cars. There's a vital piece in there somewhere where he just loses his stuff and goes and kills everybody. Okay, I mean, but like know. BTK was a dog catcher. John Wayne Gacy was a clown. Like, but so yeah, they these- all had history. I'm just saying the petty crimes, <laughs> yes, but that's not what was really going on. His normal life just happened to be that of a petty criminal. I've never, ever, ever heard of a serial killer. Ted Bundy wasn't also known for, like, shoplifting. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's really weird that, you know, like, yeah, man, I just steal cars and try to resell them and kill teenagers. Either, like, it's... Uh, and those were all very violent crimes, and he's, like, yeah. married, so where does the sexual thing come in? And then it, his like, wife you, was there? If you take a step back and look at it and just think about what type of killers do we usually have when it's lovers... And a sexual component, I'm just stating the facts here, a lot of times it will be someone with a Christian 
mentality and they like a hardcore like mm-hmm. a mental disorder plus an, an extreme christian bent and they just these people are sinning they need to die now katie and virgil were married but what if virgil had been stepping out on her that's something that was mentioned that was one of the rumors that went around was that virgil was stepping out on katie one of the local the phantom was a local he knew that virgil was stepping out maybe with his wife that actually was one of the rumors that one of the guys that um came to get his stuff welded or worked for virgil that you know one of the circulated theories was that virgil was stepping out on katie with this guy's wife and the guy shot him and that would be why it was different than the phantom's killings yeah they they did have some suspects they thought that it might be an escaped german pow they thought it might be a university student a soldier but because it was a town where railway went through and passenger planes and it was just this transient town. And on the border and along a major highway mm-hmm. where everybody's traveling. I mean, the killer could come and go as he pleased. He yeah. didn't have to be a local. It did not have to be a local. And it could be, like I said, it could have been a religious fanatic come through and. I want to know what the listeners think. I do too. Uh, I'm interested in hearing some people's feedback on this one. For sure. On our next episode, we're going to take a look at death omens. Won't that be fun? <laughs> you you looking forward to death omens? I feel like our the past year was a death omen. I had honestly. a death omen today. Was it because of the Chinese you ate? No. Oh. <laughs> Maybe I'll talk about it on the actual death omens episode. <gasps> Stay tuned. Which will be coming up next on Planet Fear. Be sure to check out our website planetfearpodcast.com for links to our social media, contact information, and our latest episodes. You can also find us on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to follow us, give us that five-star rating, or hit the like button to let us know you enjoy the show.